Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. High Energy Catholic Radio, full sheen ahead, holy hour of power. My name is Jesse Romero. My partner's out doing some apostolic work. But I'm here reporting for duty, and I'm here to give you some high energy Catholic radio. Today we've got a... Now, for some of you are wondering, you're saying, okay, Jesse, the Vatican document that just came out that talks about uh, blessing... uh, Not blessing homosexual unions, but just homosexuals asking for a spontaneous blessing from a Catholic priest. I spent a whole hour on Jesus 911. I did a deep dive. So if you want to, I mean, I covered it from every single angle. So that was on today's Jesus 911. But uh, I don't want to talk about it for two hours. So today, I want to talk about one of my favorite topics is the glories of the Catholic faith. You're going to be inspired because on the second segment, I'm going to have Dr. Helen Hoffner, who wrote a book, it's called Catholicism Everywhere, and she talks about the glories of the Catholic faith. And I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite topics because this is looking at, in other words, it's easy to look at the humanity of the church, the sinful humanity, that's easy. But boy, oh boy. If all you're doing is keeping your eyes on the trees, you're missing the forest right behind it, which is the divinity, the glories of Catholicism, which we're going to talk about, the treasures of Catholic tradition, the treasures of Catholic history. So stay tuned. So let me uh, also mention that the January 6th protesters, a lot of them are in jail for two or three years for exercising their constitutional right to, to uh, assemble in public. And it's interesting, we've just discovered that there's an, an employee inside the White House that was sodomized in one of the rooms in the White House. And so my question is, there's a, there's a, there's a title here, thegatewaypundit.com, it says, J6, J6 protesters... Uh, should have just uh, been sodomized in capital instead of marching around waving flags. Apparently that's perfectly acceptable, but the other's not. It's a good point. It's a good article to read. In other words, the double standard in this church, in another church, the double standard in society, what's good for thee, not for me. In other words, uh, people that are patriots and conservatives and people of faith, they can virtually get arrested for anything by the FBI. But if you're a man of the left... And right now, under the, this ad, pres, president and his administration, uh, you can get away with all kinds of things with just basically a slap in the hand. Okay. Let's up. Uh, let me give you some soul food. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Then I will make some comments about uh, the document that came out yesterday from the Vatican. But today's, I like today's first reading, because to understand the Old Testament. We have to understand that all the places, persons, and events in the Old Testament prefigure New Testament realities. In other words, the Old Old Testament is the type and the New Testament is the anti-type. Or the other way around, excuse me. So today's first reading, Judges chapter 13. It's talking about Samson, the most powerful, physically powerful man that God ever created. Some of you guys are saying, no, I thought Brock Lesnar was or Hulk Hogan. Nope. 
or, or Andre the Giant. No, Samson was the, the strongest man that ever walked on planet Earth. And Samson was a type of Christ. Of course, Adam was a type of Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. David was a type of Christ. But they're all imperfect types of Christ. They foreshadow Christ. Christ is a reality. They're like a shadow. And Jesus Christ is the actual physical structure. The reality. But let me point out some things about Samson that made him like Jesus. With all his flaws and imperfections and defects. Today's first reading talks about the birth of Samson is announced by an angel. Well, who else's birth was announced by an angel? The Lord Jesus Christ. So let me show you the analogies here. First reading today at Mass. There was a certain man from Zorah of the clan of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had borne no children. An angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Though you are barren and have no children, yet you will conceive and bear a son... Now then be careful to take no wine or strong drink to eat nothing unclean as for the son you will conceive and bear. No razor shall touch his head for this boy is to be consecrated to God from the womb. It is he who will begin the deliverance of Israel from the power of the Philistines. So there's several things here that jump out that make Samson a type of Christ. Number one, the angel also appeared to the Blessed Virgin Mary with similar phrases. Although she wasn't barren, she was just a virgin. And the angel told her that she'll conceive and bear a son, just like she, he told uh, the angel told uh, the wife or the mother of uh, Samson, whose, uh, whose wife is not mentioned, but the, 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 the husband's name is Manoah. What else do we see? It says for Samson is to be consecrated to God from the womb, just like Jesus, consecrated to God because he's a son of God. And also Samson, what does it say? It is, he will begin the, it is he who will begin the deliverance of Israel from the power of Philistines. In other words, it is Jesus who will deliver his people and the entire world through his death on the cross from our sins, through his blood atonement. Then it says, today's first reading, the woman went and told her husband, a man of God came to me. He had the appearance of an angel, terrible indeed, I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, you will be with child and will bear a son. So take neither wine nor strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the boy shall be consecrated to God from the womb until the day of his death. So, again, the same, uh, by, by way of a comparison, the angel Gabriel. And I think it was the angel Gabriel. I think tradition says it was the angel Gabriel or Michael. I'll have to look it up. But the fact is, this angel appeared and bore good news to Manoah's wife, just like the angel Gabriel bore good news to the Blessed Virgin Mary, that she'll be the mother of God, Mater Dei, the mother of God. It's my wife's license plate, Mater Dei. And it says, the woman bore a son and named him Samson. The, groy, the boy grew up and the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord stirred him, the word of the Lord. Well, the same thing it says about our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that... Jesus Christ grew up and the Lord blessed him and he grew up and he grew in age and wisdom and grace. And so what's the point that I'm making here is that our Lord Jesus Christ or, or Samson, Samson is a type of Christ. That's the point that I'm making. All the Old Testament figures are types of Jesus Christ. 
And I'll tell you, this, this story is worth reading. The story of Samson. Samson was chosen by God to be a judge even before his birth. And uh, his father Manoah from the tribe of Dan was married to a woman who was barren. And the angel appeared to her announcing that she would be pregnant. However, he warned her that the child must be a Nazarite, one who's totally dedicated to the Lord, that he was never to drink wine or shave his head. And the child's name was Samson. And uh, he grew strong. He was full of the spirit of the Lord. He was so strong that he even killed a lion with his bare hands. Can you imagine that? But again, Samson, how did he end his life? He found the sin, sexual sin, 6th and ninth commandment. The Philistines arrested him. They, they pulled his eyes, they, they pulled his eye, gouged his eyes out with fire. And uh, why? Because the Israelites were commanded by God not to marry pagan women. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was cavorting with pagan women. And, and he entered into a mixed marriage with a pagan woman from Timnah named Delilah. And, and Samson only found grief for his infidelity. And her wedding guests mocked his peasant ways and his inability to make up riddles. And what, he ends up getting arrested. His wife betrays him. And uh, once he gets arrested, as, a, as his basic last act of defiance, because he was so entangled in sin at this point. Samson was blind. He was made to be a slave and live like an ox threshing the field with a, with a uh, yoke around his neck. The Philistines brought him out one last time. They, they, they were in their temple. There's thousands of Philistines mocking the great warrior Samson and he's blind and old and decrepit. They were holding a feast. They decided to amuse themselves at Samson's expense. They, they brought him to the temple to make fun of him. And when he arrived, he asked the, he asked the Lord, to, or he asked the, 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 the person who brought him out, place my hands between the central pillars of the building. And with an intense moment, the, the blind prisoner Samson called upon God to give him back his strength one more time. He asked the Lord for one last favor as an act of mercy. And God granted him that favor. And Samson still had to make reparation for his sins by paying the ultimate sacrifice and giving up his own life in the act of God's justice upon the unbelieving Philistines. And God granted Samson strength one more time. And Samson pulled down the pillars, causing the temple to collapse on him and all the Philistines. Samson died a violent death, but with a contrite heart and rededicated to the Lord. And he took about 3,000 of his enemies with him. That's a story that every Catholic man should read. The story has everything, blind love, betrayal, fidelity, and the power of evil to destroy relationships. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. Up next, good news. If you want to know about the glories of the Catholic Church, stay tuned for Dr. Helen Hoffner, and she's going to share with us the beauty, the treasures, the gold found within the Catholic faith. Stick around. We'll be right back. are back the terry and jesse show my name is jesse romero and i am so happy to be talking to we've been postponing this uh this interview for a while and stuff and i'm glad that we're able to do it today 
Dr. Helen Hoffner, she wrote a book, and this is something that we need right now. Talk about a Christmas present. Dr. Helen Hoffner has given us a Christmas present. She wrote a book called Catholicism Everywhere. Perfect, perfect book right before Christmas. Because right now, let's just be honest, doctor, a lot of people are focusing on the negative, some of the bad news that we hear even happening within Holy Mother Church. But you have written a book, Catholicism Everywhere, put out by Sophia Press, by the way. And let me give you just uh, a little bit of background here. Dr. Helen Hoffner is the author of Catholic Traditions and Treasures, an illustrated encyclopedia and the co-author of the, of the Rosary Collector's Guide. Dr. Hoffner earned a doctorate at Widener University, a master's at Temple University, and a, and a bachelor's degree at Westchester University. She studied theology at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, one of the great seminaries in the, in the country. Since 1989, Dr. Hoffner has been a professor at Holy Family University, where she chairs doctoral dissertation committees and teaches graduate and undergraduate courses. She's been a teacher in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and is a member of the Cardinal O'Hara High School Hall of Fame and the Domestic Schools Advisory Board of the Middle States Association of Colleges and Schools. And we want to talk about her new book. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Welcome. Happy Holy Advent. And uh, and I, I hope uh, uh, God is blessing you in this wonderful Advent season. But let's pick up the audience. I want to give people some stimulation, some intellectual and spiritual stimulation. You have written a book where you're, you've uncovered the gold, the treasures of the Catholic faith, where a lot of people oftentimes they see the glass half empty. This book, we're seeing the glass half full. We're seeing the divinity, the beauty of the Catholic faith. So let me ask you, uh, I have, there's a whole bunch of things I want to ask you, but let me start off first by saying that uh, what compelled you to write this book? As I was meeting people in my work at Holy Family University and teaching, I'd hear all kinds of great things that was going on in the Catholic Church and great achievements. And I thought, you know, somebody should write this down. As you said, sometimes there's a lot of negative things and people get the wrong idea and think that maybe the church is not with modern times or not involved in scientific research. So I wanted to get all the good news out there. And like, every time I would find something, I'd be telling somebody, wow, did you know that it was a nun who got the basic computer language going on the internet or that a priest that helped fishermen handle their fishing rods better? I just thought there were so many great things that Catholics have done over the years that it needs to be out there for the audience. Well, so let me, I'm going to start asking you point by point because I want the audience to hear the, what I would call the glories of Catholicism. So I guess it, it, you have one chapter where you talk about a Jesuit priest who developed the first hurricane warning system and a Christian brother who invented the submarine. And you also talk about a parish priest who made broadcasts possible. Can you talk about all those three? I'm fascinated to know that. Yeah, that's what I think is fabulous. And people need to know that these were done by priests who were doing their work as a parish priest and also getting mm. scientific developments on the side. So the hurricane one, Father Benito Vines, way back in 1875. He was stationed in Cuba and he saw the devastation that could happen there with storms. And he... That was 1875. He didn't have the scientific equipment that's available today. But he was observing the sky and noticing changes. And he got to be extremely good at noticing when a storm would come. He studied it and used the equipment that was available to him and began writing articles for newspapers then about how to predict when a storm is coming. 
And he gets credit with giving the very first hurricane warning. He developed a way of looking at the sky and warning people. And thanks to his warnings, people were able to batten down the hatches and save their property as well as they could and probably save lives with that. Doctor, give me his name again. Bonita Vines? Benito Vines. Oh, Bonito. With an o, yeah. masculine. Bonito Vines, V-I-N-E-S, correct? Yes, way back. He gets credit for the first hurricane warning on September 12th of 1875. Wow. Wow. Tell me about this other Christian brother who invented a submarine. What? Are you kidding me? Talk to me about him. What's his And he is a great... His name is John P. Holland, like the country Holland. When he was a little boy, his father was in the Coast Guard, but he had some medical problems where he himself wouldn't be able to have a life on the sea. He just didn't have the, uh, the health to do that. But he went to a Christian Brothers school and he was very good at math and science. And he had some ideas in his head. Now this is way back in the early 1900s. And he had the idea about ships that could go underwater. And of course, people told him as a teenager, that's silly, it'll never happen kind of thing. But he would draw these submarines. And he did have one priest at the Christian Brothers School who encouraged him to go on. He eventually became a Christian brother himself and taught as a brother for several years. But he still had this idea of submarines in his head when the whole world was telling him that was crazy. Hmm. And he he sent his ideas to the United States Navy that ignored him. But then later on, people in the Navy discovered his work and they contacted him and said, you know, maybe you were onto something. And he gave his plan to the Navy, worked with the Navy, and he was the one who gave us the idea of submarines and got the whole idea started. So this is just a, a kid who kind of had those inclinations because his father was a Coast Guard. And so he actually, so he was born, was he, did he live in the U.S.? No, he lived in Ireland for a while, okay. uh, came to the U.S., but and he went to... And he sent his work and his plans to the U.S. Navy, right? Right. And that's eventually how the Navy ended up inventing what we call the submarine, correct? Right. First, they said, of course, that he was crazy. Wow. But then they started listening to him. 1873, he left the Christian Brothers and his native Ireland to come to the United States. His ship actually was October 12, 1900, that his ship, the Holland 6, was commissioned as the very first submarine of the American Navy. Okay. I, I, so people, so his, fir, his first ship was called what? The Holland 6. So they named it after him. Wow, the Holland 6. And that was what year? Ni- uh, 1900. Unbelievable. Well, so now talk to him about another parish priest who made radio broadcasts possible. Are you kidding me? Who is this man? Who is this priest? And I love him because I'm from the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And the priest was Father Joseph Margus, who lived in my state of Pennsylvania in Wilkes-Barre. If any of your, if any of the audience is used to the Pocono Mountain area of the Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre is up there. So Father Murgis liked to tinker with all kinds of things in his rectory when he wasn't doing his work as a priest. And he actually got the notion, looking at tele- telegraphs and things that were going on, he actually developed what he called a musical tone system that could send radio broadcast. And he got people to invest, give them the money to set it up, 
And his very first broadcast that he tried out went from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania to Scranton. A lot of people hear about the city of Scranton in the news for various things. So there was Father Murgis, sent the first radio signal from Wilkes-Barre to Scranton, which was a distance of 19 miles. He got 17 patents for his ideas on radio. Now, people always give Marconi credit for being the, the one who invented radio. Actually, Marconi had a system, but Father Murgis' system worked much faster, much more efficiently. So Father Murgis, sitting in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is not really a very big town, actually contacted Marconi, who was in Italy. Marconi came from Italy to Wilkes-Barre to meet with Father Murgis. And Father Murgis was getting older, and at the time he thought he might not have many years to live. So he actually gave all of his 17 patents to Marconi, free of charge, wow. because he wanted Marconi to take radio broadcasts further. Around what year was this, Doctor? What year? Right around what year was this? So that was about 1905. Wow. Early on, real early on. So he, he's, you can actually say he's the pioneer of radio. He is. And another funny thing about Father Murgis, the town of Wilkes-Barre, as I said, it's near the Pocono Mountain area, and people like to do their fishing there. So Father Murgis had his 17 patents related to radio, he also patented the spinning wheel on fishing rods. Mm. How do you spell his last name? Father Joseph Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S? No, M-U-R-G-A-S. Ah, M-U-R-G-A-S. Fascinating. Let me ask you about coffee lovers. I guess coffee lovers can thank Pope Clement VIII. Uh, what, what is his contribution to us coffee lovers? And that's one of the favorite ones in Catholicism everywhere, because I think people around the world love their coffee. Way back in the 16th century, some world leaders thought that coffee was addictive, which many people would still agree. But the world leaders thought coffee was addictive and it shouldn't be available readily to people. That was a dangerous drug. So they went to the Pope and they asked the Pope to ban coffee. Well, the Pope took a sip, he liked it, and he actually issued an edict saying that coffee was an acceptable drink for Christians and <laughs> issued a proclamation allowing Christians to drink coffee. So if it wasn't proposed, Clement, coffee might be a controlled substance. Oh, got it, got it. So I guess the Mormons uh, wouldn't like uh, Pope Clement's, uh, his, his decree, I guess. <laughs> I guess they wouldn't agree. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Okay. This is a big one. The, the Mayo Clinic, it's one of the world's leading hospitals. Do, do the Catholic nuns have something to do with the beginning of the Mayo Clinic? They have everything to do with it. And in Catholicism everywhere, this might be the one that the world needs to know. Wow. There was a tornado in Rochester, Minnesota devastated the town. The mayor of the town happened to be named William Mayo. So he was the mayor of the town, but he was also a physician. So when this tornado struck his town, he needed a place he could take injured people. So he went to the nuns, and it was Mother Mary Nose, who was the superior of the convent in town. 
And he told her, I need a big building where I can bring the injured so that I can just treat everyone in one place. Can I use your building? And she said, yes. So the injured people from the tornado were brought to the convent and sister mother Mary knows and all the nuns in that convent, they helped with nursing. So when the immediate emergency was over, mother Mary knows started thinking, well, gee, there is no hospital in town. And we got through that, but what, what will we do the next time an emergency comes along? So she went back to father, or not father, Dr. Mayo, and said to Dr. Mayo, the town needs a hospital. Hold that thought, Doc. I thought we're going to a quick station break. That's a good teaser. That's a good cliffhanger. We're listening to Jesus 911. I've got Dr. Helen Hofner talking to us about the glories of Catholicism. Stick around. This is good stuff. This is a good Christmas gift. Well, this is a good news show today. I'm always fascinated by learning about the historical contributions and glories of Catholicism. We have the right person here, Dr. Helen Hoffner. She just wrote a book. It's called Catholicism Everywhere. You can pick it up by going to sophiapress.com, sophiapress.com. This would be a great Christmas present because so many Catholics always focus on the negative, And this is a book which uncovers, again, the blessings, the treasures, the glories of the Catholic faith that most of us don't know about. I mean, I consider myself a high-information Catholic, and the stuff that Dr. Hoffman is sharing with me is making my brain explode. My synapses are popping just to learn about the glories of the Catholic faith. Doctor, pick it up from where you left off. I had asked you about the Mayo Clinic being one of the world's leading hospitals, and did Catholic nuns have anything to do with this? And you're saying, you're giving us the backdrop to the story. Can you please continue? Yeah, I think this is a great story about Catholics actually living their faith. So 1883, Rochester, Minnesota, there's no hospital anywhere near, and a tornado struck. The mayor of the town was Dr. William Mayo. So he was the mayor, but he was also a doctor. When a tornado struck, he asked Mother Mary knows if he could bring the injured into the convent so he had one big place to treat everyone. They agreed. And the nuns helped with the nursing. But then after the tornado and after people had recovered from their injuries, Mother Mary said, well, what are we going to do if another emergency comes? We hope it doesn't happen, but we should be prepared. So she went to Dr. Mayo and said, if you will staff it as a physician and or help me recruit more physicians to have a hospital, our order, the Sisters of St. Francis, and I think this is what the world needs to know. It was the Sisters of St. Francis who said, we will put up the funding for a hospital if you as a doctor will help us. So Dr. Mayo staffed the hospital. His two sons are also doctors. So the three of them were the very first doctors. And that's really how the Mayo Clinic got started. The Mayo Clinic that has helped so many people around the world. So I think that's a really great testament to our Catholic faith in action. Wow. So they basically, it was a collaboration of Catholic nuns this mother superior uh, and this uh, this mayor, this collaboration after the tornado is what started this uh, this national hospital system called the Mayo Clinics, right? Yeah, 
So we wouldn't have all the wonderful things that came out of the Mayo Clinic without those nuns helping out in the, in the beginning. Wow. Awesome. Amazing. All right, here's another one. We know that many of the apostles were fishermen by reading the New Testament, but you talk about this priest called Father Joseph Murgas, the, the priest who invented and received the patent for, for the spinning reel used on fishing rods. Now, Father Murgas, you also told us that he improved radio broadcast by giving uh, Guglielmo Marconi 17 patents and all of, his, all of his notes for this musical tone system. But tell us about this priest and how he invented the spinning reel used on fishing rods. How did that come he, out? He was someone who certainly worked hard for his parish. And we know he also worked hard inventing the radio, doing those kind of things. So when he did have a moment for recreation, the Wilkes-Barre area of Pennsylvania has many beautiful lakes. It's a perfect spot for fishing. So he went fishing in the way that people did for centuries before him, but thought there must be a way to make the fishing rod even better. And how can I bring my line in easier than the way I'm doing it now? So he sat there and tried different ideas, different ways of spinning, and he actually developed the wheel that spins the rod in it and brings your, your line in closer. I'm not a fisherman myself, so I had to talk to some, some of my friends who are fishermen to help me understand just the work he did. But he just revolutionized fishing rods. If he had been one who wanted to make money, he probably would have made an awful lot of money on his patent. But he gave oh. all his money to his parish. Oh, I can imagine this guy would have been a multimillionaire because, you know, most men, that's uh, most men are, that's one of the hobbies of, of most males around the world is fishing. And and so he, he invented the spinning reel that's probably the one that's used today, right? Yeah. The one that's still really used on fishing rods. There's been certainly some improvements since this time, but he's the one who started the whole idea. Unbelievable. Okay, let's let's for all those football fans, let's talk about Roger Staubach of the Dallas Cowboys. What's his his contribution uh, to Catholicism, or how did he highlight the Catholic faith as a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys? What can you tell us about him? So, in 1975, there was a divisional playoff game. And he wanted to win that game. The game was important. He wanted to help his team. And Roger Staubach, years later, said what he really wanted to do was win. Just What can I do to win? And like what most Catholics will do is pray. Like, oh, God, help me win this. So when he was trying to pray, he said a Hail Mary. He said a Hail Mary and through the pass, and thank goodness things won. He said later that he said, I said a Hail Mary and told the reporters that I said a Hail Mary. And so the term, the Hail Mary pass came to be part of our vocabulary. He said, actually, I could have said an Our Father. I could have said a Glory Be. But I said a Hail Mary. And he joked that that got me in good standing with the Blessed Mother. I helped sort of publicize the Blessed Mother. But his Hail Mary pass was his prayer to win the game. And it certainly worked. You know, it's funny, Doctor, that's, that's part of our American lexicon now. Uh, and most people, even Protestants, they say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, the, the Hail Mary pastor. The and so it was Roger Staubach that actually said that in 75 uh, during during a divisional playoff game. So he told the press and the press basically took this phrase and they just made it part of the American landscape. Right. And that's all you need is a reporter in the room who likes it and 
it got famous. To me, the other funny expression, we've all heard the, the joke, is the Pope Catholic? You know, something, if something seems really obvious, it's like, is the Pope Catholic? And I was surprised to learn who the person was that said that. Who was that? Well, those of us that are old enough to remember the original Beverly, Beverly Hillbillies TV, TV show from the 1960s. So you had the Beverly Hillbillies. Yes. And maybe the younger viewers will see it on the, on the cable TV stations. So the actor who played Jethro, Jethro Bodine, before he was an actor, he was a boxer. And his father was a really, really famous boxer. So the actor's name was Max Baer Jr., but oh, Max yeah, Bear, Max Bear. Yeah, but and Max yeah. Bear Sr. was a very successful boxer. So Max Bear Jr. goes into his boxing match and a lot of pressure on him because his father's so famous, so people were expecting a lot out of him. He got beaten horrendously, just really beaten up. His opponent beat him by a landslide. And after it was over, a reporter said, said to him, So was your opponent a good athlete? He said, Is a Pope Catholic? Of course, he's a good athlete. <laughs> so we've got Jethro to thank for that expression. It's a Pope Catholic. You know, what do you think? <laughs> so it was a boxer that said that. Yes. Wow. He was yeah. a third actor. I'm partisan. I, 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 I boxed for 10 years as a, as a high-level amateur boxer. So I'm, I'm kind of partisan to uh, boxers. So that's good to know. So I can share that with my, with my boxing buddies. So talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous, did a Catholic nun have anything to do with the establishment of uh, this type of medical treatment for alcoholics? Yes. And this goes back to the Mayo Clinic. Like, we don't realize what nuns have done for healthcare in general. So, there was a nun, Sister Mary Ignatia, back in the 1930s, when most of the world had very negative opinions of people that were dealing with alcoholism and just didn't give the kind of compassion that, that we would hope they would. Well, Sister Mary Ignatia, she was a registrar in a hospital. She was not a doctor or nurse herself, but she being the registrar in the hospital, saw the comings and goings. And she started to think that alcoholism had a medical basis. She really thought that these people deserved medical treatment. So she approached other doctors there. One of them was Dr. Robert Smith, who had done some work with alcoholics, but even Dr. Bob, as his patients called him, he didn't really believe that there was a medical basis to alcoholism. But Sister Mary Ignatia did. And she pestered and pestered Dr. Bob to do some research, look for the medical basis here with alcoholism. And Sister Mary Ignatia, she got the very first hospital ward for alcoholism it was St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, Ohio in the 1930s. She got medical treatment for people dealing with alcoholism, worked with Dr. Bob. She's really the one who started Alcoholics Anonymous. She even gave away little tokens where nowadays people who successfully move through an Alcoholics Anonymous program get tokens. Well, Sister Mary Ignatia, she would give them the Sacred Heart badges that maybe some people are familiar with the Sacred Heart badges. Sometimes there's red embroidery around them. She would give these to people for completion and say, now, if you fall off, I want it back. She would give them St. Christopher medals for their cars and say, 
don't drive over 50 miles an hour or St. Christopher will, will get out of the car. But Sister Mary Ignatia gets credit for establishing the first medical treatment for people dealing with alcoholism. She gets credit for starting Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and what year? What year was that where, where this medical treatment center was open? That was 1939. She started her first center. And who was Dr. Bob? What was, what's his full name that, that she was pestering to, to open this up? His name was Dr. Robert Smith, who certainly did a great deal for Alcoholics Anonymous. But it took the team of the two of them working together. Was he a Catholic or non-Catholic, you know? I haven't been able to find that. But I do know that the first medical centers for Alcoholics Anonymous, the first one where Sister Mary Ignatia was a registrar, was St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, Ohio. And then she opened the second one at St. Vincent Charity Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. First one in St. Thomas in Akron, Ohio. And f- and from there, it just opened. they just opened up around the country like, like wildfire, right? It really changed perception that that people dealing with alcoholism need medical treatment. Amen. We're listening to Dr. Helen Hoffner. Go to sophiapress.com. Get the book, Catholicism Everywhere. Catholicism Everywhere, sophiapress.com. I got another segment with the good doctor. I got a lot of questions to ask her. This is good stuff. I feel like I'm getting three college units. I'll be right back. Don't stick around. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Today's psalm at Holy Mass, my mouth shall be filled with your praise and I will sing your glory forever. Psalm 71. We got Dr. Helen Hoffner here. She's a, what a great contribution to the Catholic faith, especially for a time like right now, right before Christmas. And, you know, right now before uh, some uh, some not so good news coming uh, from headquarters, so to speak. She wrote a book called Catholicism Everywhere. You can get the book from SophiaPress.com, SophiaPress.com. And I like the fact that because too many Catholics, and I can I can fall into it myself because I have that personality as well sometimes we focus on the negative because we're too plugged into the news instead of focusing on the positive jesus christ his advent his birth his holiness his second coming and the glories of the catholic church which dr helen hoffner is uh is showing us right now like i feel like i'm getting three college units after this radio show doctor talk about christmas eve tradition of the feast of the seven fishes it grew out of necessity. Give us a backdrop to that story. How did that story come come about? Well, nowadays, we're not as good about fasting before receiving communion as people were in the old days. I think some of us are a little lax on that. But way back in history, people absolutely fasted before receiving communion. And when you wanted to go to midnight mass Christmas Eve, they fasted the entire day. Wow. So the entire day they're fasting. By the time you go to midnight mass, many people weren't feeling well. So the priests at the time had a dilemma. They certainly wanted people to come to midnight mass, but they didn't feel well. And we had to think about the health of everyone. So it was decided that, well, during Lent when we're fasting, fish is allowed. The old, you can eat fish on Fridays. So they decided that the people could eat fish before they attended midnight mass. Mm. It'd be acceptable to have a feast of fish and that's how we get the feast of the seven fishes on Christmas Eve. Interesting. Wow, that got that has a a, a historical pedigree. Talk and to it's me. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sister, I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Helen, talk to me about in the 1960s, Sister Mary Kenneth was a member of the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. What's her contribution to uh, the world of computer science? And here's another one where we have to give credit for the priests and nuns, the, the wonderful education they had. So Sister Mary Kenneth, way back before anyone was talking computers, she got an interest in this new science that was developing. And she heard in, that Dartmouth College was doing programs for computers. And at the time, Dartmouth only accepted male students. There were no women attending Dartmouth, let alone a nun. But she was interested in some of the mathematical work that was going on there, and she applied. And she was allowed to come and attend classes. So Sister Mary Kenneth, she's attending Dartmouth on this special situation, basically the only female there, excelling in math classes, got the attention of two conference organizers, John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz. They were doing early work on computers, and they recognized the talent of this nun, Sister Mary Kenneth, and asked her to do research with them. And their research actually was the basic computer system. Many of us use computers today, but now it's gotten so easy that we don't have to know basic ourselves. Well, Sister Mary Kenneth is the one who made computers easy for all of us. We can shop online, we can do our email because of the way she developed basic. She was actually, she gets credit for being the first woman to get a PhD in computer science in 1965 when that was a really new field. Wow. It's a shame she gets credit for being the first woman, actually the first man. His college was graduating on the same day and the man's college graduation ceremony was an hour before Sister Mary Kenneth's ceremony at her college. So you can say she's the first woman, actually both people graduated the same day. So she developed basic and was one of the first people to get a PhD in computer science. Unbelievable. Well, here we've got Dr. Helen Hofner talking to us about the glories of the Catholic faith. Talk to me about steeplechase races. How did they actually begin? Give us the, the, the origins of that. And this is another funny one about how words get in our vocabulary. So if you think about the early days before there were so many office buildings and skyscrapers that we have now, a church steeple was the tallest thing that you could see. So one night, 1752, two men in Ireland, Cornelius O'Callaghan and Edmund Blank, they were having dinner and they were arguing about who had the fastest horse. So they decided they would have a horse race. And they decided that their race would start at St. John's Church in Butterfont, and they were going to race to St. Mary's Church in Dunrail, which was about a four mile distance. So they started at the steeple of St. John's Church. And then to be able to see the finish line and know where they were going, it was like, so we're here at St. John's. You see that steeple way in the distance? We're going to race to there. But when you think about their race, it wasn't a nice, smooth race course like you would see in the Olympics today. It was crossing through people's yards, jumping over stone walls, going over ponds. So the steeplechase races that we now have with obstacles, it's because the very first steeplechase race was a race from the steeple of one church to the next and dealing with all the obstacles. The funny thing is in history, there is records that this race actually happened, but there's no recording of who won. 
So we know they challenged each other, and maybe that was their agreement not to put down in the record books who won. Wow. Wow. Dr. Hoffner, tell us a little bit about Monopoly and how, uh, how I guess, Catholic bishops uh, made that game a little bit pop more popular. Yeah. So there actually were Parker Brothers. So now we know the name of Parker Brothers as a large corporation. There actually were, in the late 1800s, a man named George Parker, who developed a game called Banking with his brothers. And the game got popular. So George, his brother Charles, his brother Edward, they were making these game boards and just trying to sell them as they could. Around 1929, during the Depression, people were liking their game called Banking because it, it sort of cheered them up a little bit, gave them something to hope for. But the Parker brothers themselves weren't able to make enough game boards to keep up with the demand. The Parker brothers knew that people wanted their game, they could sell it, but how many could they actually make? So then they recruited people to help them. But they were doing this around the Boston area. And the people in Boston didn't want to work on Sundays. They were keeping the commandment of honor the Sabbath. So the Parker brothers would have liked to have game boards going, being made in their factory 24-7. But the people wouldn't work on Sundays. So the Parker brothers actually went to the bishop. They were in the Archdiocese of Boston and said, you know, if people could work on Sundays and make the games, they would be able to support their families. It would be good for the town. Wouldn't you let the people work on Sundays so that it brought more income for their families and prosperity to the town? And the bishop thought about it. And he issued a notice to the people saying that to do this on Sundays, you would actually be doing God's work because you were doing something for your common man. And he told the people it would be okay with, with him if they worked on Sundays. So everyone started working. They, they liked the extra income for their families. And that's how Monopoly got to be the famous game that it is today because they were able to produce enough game boards to get them in circulation and have everything going. Wow. Now, here's a fascinating one because I live in the state of Arizona. Uh, the state of Arizona actually possesses something that was contributed by the Catholic Church over in Tucson. What is it, doctor? We have the Vatican Observatory. The main one is close to the Vatican, but we have a branch in Tucson. And here's things when people say like, oh, is the Catholic Church really following scientific exploration? Yes, they were. the Catholic Church was before anyone else. So in the late 1800s, Pope Leo XIII established the Vatican Observatory. And the Vatican Observatory was on a hill behind St. Peter's Basilica. So that was around the late 1800s, about 1891, he did that. Well, by the 1930s, there got to be too much light pollution around Rome. Light from buildings, car headlights, smog. They couldn't see the stars as well as they could years ago. So they moved the Vatican Observatory from Saint, from behind St. Peter's Basilica to Castle Gandolfo, the Pope's summer residence. So first they moved it to Castle Gandolfo, and that, that helped solving the light pollution problem. It was better than when it was closer to St. Peter's Basilica, but they still had such light pollution. Well, 1981, they found a solution. Tucson, Arizona has some of the best observatory conditions in the world. In Tucson... You can see the sky without as much light pollution as you have in other parts of the world. 
So the Vatican Observatory actually opened a second research center there. It's been staffed through the years by astronomers of many religious orders. The Augustinians have staffed it, the Jesuits, and lay scientists. But some of the great astronomical discoveries are coming out of the Vatican Observatory right in Tucson, Arizona. Wow. All the information that you're listening to right now, it's coming from a book called Catholicism Everywhere. SophiaPress.com, SophiaPress.com. This is a good Christmas gift to make a low-information Catholic turn him into a high-information Catholic. The author is Dr. Hoffner. We have her on right now. I got time for one last question before we come to the end of the show. Dr. Hoffner, how did we get the word bingo to become a household name in Catholicism? And there's a fun one. And it comes back again to Pennsylvania. There's something in the water in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Hmm. It was a priest in Wilkes-Barre. But 1530, there was a game in Italy. Well, 1530 on, they played different games with numbers in Italy. But 1929, there was a toy salesman named Edward Lowe. He got the idea to bring a game to the United States, but he called his game Beano. And each player was given a card that contained numbers. And when the game's leader called out a number, the players covered it under cards with beans. And you would call out Beano and, and declare a winner. Well, Doctor, I hear the music. Oh, no, I hear the music. We we, we came, we're coming to a hard break. Doctor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dr. Helen Hoffner, what a great contribution she's given the Catholic Church. Her book is called Catholicism Everywhere. Pick one up. Christmas is right around the corner. Pick up a couple of these books. SophiaPress.com, SophiaPress.com. Doctor, we'll have to have you again, I promise. Thank you very much. Have a happy Holy Advent. God bless you and keep the faith. Thank you. Up next, more great programming from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And as for us, the Terry and Jesse Show, that's a wrap. We will uh, we'll see you next time. Same Christ time, same Christ channel, giving you inspirational Roman Catholic teaching. And remember, pray your rosary every single day. Live in a state of grace. Do not live in a state of mortal sin. Become holy or die trying. See you tomorrow. God bless you.